You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Thursday, beautiful Canada, coast to coast to coast. How's my friends doing out there? I am here inside the Temple of Talk. I'm Evan Solomon here beside me in the Cathedral of Controversy is Samantha Pope. And the bear is in the den of sound, Chris Viss. The team is all here. I think Nick's on the board in Toronto. Hi, everybody. Uh, Lots on the show today, on a Thursday. And, of course, I have the TOD for you. I wish we had a stinger for TOD. Theme of the day. Theme of the day today throughout the big show is going to be exit. How to leave. To exit with class. The theme today is exits. Why? Well, there are four exits I want to talk about. Four departures. Obviously, the big departure is the Queen. Today, in a special session of the House of Commons, of Parliament, the leaders all stood up and paid tribute. I thought beautiful tributes to the Queen. Except... The Bloc Quebecois, no surprise, said, look, this is not personal. Anybody who's mourning her death, we have sympathy for. But the leader of the Bloc Quebecois then said, look, this is not important to us. We're a nationalist party. The monarchy represents the kind of authority we do not abide by. And as the rest of you are giving tributes throughout the day, all the MPs, we are leaving. And they got up and after the moment of silence, left. Gone. See you later. That's their right. It was a good tribute. Personally, it wasn't, wasn't an angry tribute. But, you know, what did you expect? So right now they're giving more tributes with sans bloc, without the bloc. And the bloc will continue to take their pensions and enjoy all the benefits of the country without honoring the monarch. And you know what? As gross as that may be to many people, that is the beautiful thing about a freedom in a democracy. You can be an elected official where all the taxpayers are paying your salary and you're going to get a pension from the country you want to break apart. And it's a constitutional monarchy and you are going to get up out of your seats and leave while honoring her after 70 years. And you have the right to do it and it will cause no waves. So they exited parliament. They departed. Did it have class? They didn't do it classlessly. I'm not surprised. But of course, the queen herself is in the long last journey up to the state funeral on Monday. The lineups are like 10 kilometers long. People in the UK are paying their respects. So that's one of the exits. And and these tributes are important. I think people are learning a lot about our history, which I like. And I think mostly politicians are conducting themselves with a dignity and a carriage that befits not only the queen and perhaps the new king, but with the moment. And I like that. We have an adversarial system by nature, but it is nice when parliamentarians act in unison when tragedies happen or when, in this sense, this is not a tragedy, but when 
a when grieving is happening for someone who dedicated her life to service. Now, I do think the conversations about the monarchy should and will be more robust. But that was an exit. The block exits and departs today from Parliament with no surprise. So that's one, the Queen and then the block. Roger Federer, the greatest tennis player in my mind ever. I know that he's been surpassed in major wins by both Rafa Nadal and by Djokovic. In my mind, Federer remains the most beautiful player. I love him. I have a man crush on him. My wife, by the way, has a uh, woman crush on Nadal. I, I love Nadal, too. He's great. But not the way I, I my almost gross passion for Federer. Just to see, like, I love any athlete. I mean, it was the same Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, Roger Federer, Wayne Gretzky. Athletes that, Serena Williams. Although I didn't have the same, I, I, I think I probably have more respect for Serena than any of them. Her journey was the most remarkable. I don't know if I connected with her on her personality the way I have with some others, uh, but I, I don't think any I could respect someone more than her. But Federer, like, I just, I loved the way he played. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, this is a Dream Weaver moment. And he played with class front of his four kids. And then uh, do we have a clip of Roger Federer here? Because he, 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 he both did an audio and then a letter about leaving his, his last event will be next week in London, the Labor Cup, the final ATP event. And here is Federer exiting the sport after 24 years, the 20 time Grand Slam champ. And this is what I call an exit with class. I am 41 years old. I've played more than 1,500 matches over 24 years. Tennis has treated me more generously than I ever would have dreamt. And now I must recognize when it is time to end my competitive career. Oh, God. Now, why did he retire? Here he is explaining the, the injuries of the last three years. As many of you know, the past three years have presented me with challenges in the form of injuries and surgeries. I've worked hard to return to full competitive form, but I also know my body's capacities and limits and its message to me lately has been clear. Anyway, Roger Federer, he goes goes out with class. He's so great. He's just so great. And, and you know, Djokovic and, and, and Nadal are great, and, and the new generation, Alcaraz, is great. I love these these human beings that that sort of show us the great capacities of, of what we're capable of. So he exits with class. And then we had one more exit worth mentioning. Alain Reyes, who left the Conservative Party after Pierre Polyev became the leader. That's his right. He can leave the party. People leave the party. He does not support Pierre Polyev. And he was a Charest supporter. He was actually the Quebec lieutenant for Andrew Scheer. But he left. And when he left... He was bombarded by text messages, nasty ones. And guess what? The actual Conservative Party had to apologize. Get this. They actually had to apologize for what they said 
they sent out a text that said this. He's decided not to fight inflation, Mr. Reyes, with Pierre Polyev's team. And and then the the message, I can read it to you exactly. Do I have it exactly here? Oh, yeah, here. I think I have it exactly. Your MP, Alain Reyes, just quit the party conservative. He decided not to fight the inflation of Trudeau with the team united by Pierre Polyev. Hey, you should call his office right now. Tell him to resign as a member of parliament. Call him. And then they gave the number. And the Conservative Party then had to formally apologize for what they said was an automated text message sent out earlier to party members from the riding at Richmond, Athabasca. Really? An automated message? Like, it's not automated when it literally calls out the guy who left, is translated into French and English, and bombards him. And then Reyes, who's a longtime MP, was bombarded so viciously, he said this was a form of intimidation. He said in a series of interviews. And he said he's been, and his office has been bombarded. And he said it's been a nightmare. He's an independent. He's a member of parliament. He represents his constituency. And now the party's openly attacking him. Now they've apologized. That, he exited. You're you're an independent member of parliament. If his constituents don't like him, they can vote him out next time. But attacking someone like that and forcing him to resign makes an exit not classy, not well done. So today we'll dig into all the four exits, each of them totally different than the other. But coming up, another exit, the long-term care homes. This, not graceful. Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the big show. I told you the theme of the day, the TOTD. Someone pointed out that TOD is not theme of the day. It's time of death. We'll get to that in a minute. The TOTD. Theme of the day is exits. The Queen's long exit. Done beautifully. Something too long. The block walking out after their tribute to the Queen so they don't have to listen to any more tributes. Is it a classless exit? Maybe, but not surprising. Roger Federer's brilliant Don't Play That Song Because I'm in love with that beautiful man. No, no, no. God, I love him, though. I do. I can't. Roger Federer retired from Dennis's last. Alain Reyes, he exits from the Conservative Party in the caucus of Pierre Polyev and then gets bombard, bombarded. Later in the show, speaking of exits, the CEO of Patagonia, the clothing company, has exited and given the entire company away, billion-dollar company, in the service of climate change. Imagine being his, like, kids and grandkids. Where's the company, Dad? Oh, well, I've given it all away for climate. Uh, but we'll talk about that exit. But maybe the most... Profound exit we all have is when someone passes away. And I know a bit about this. Obviously, my dad, who passed away in this past year, and once you get into the long-term care side of someone, you know that you're it's a it's a, a palliative care, long-term care. I did it with my father-in-law, my dad. I mean, you're into a new world. Well, the Ontario government has decided in what's called Bill 7, 
that if you are awaiting a spot in a long-term care facility, you can be moved to a home 150 kilometers away in the north or 70 kilometers away. So, like, how do you visit your loved one in a long-term care facility if they're 150 kilometers away? Oh, wait, where's dad? Oh, oh, he's in a long-term care home. Where? How close? It's 150 clicks away. Or it's 75 clicks or 70 clicks away. And if you refuse the spot, if you say, I do not want my dad, my mom, my grandfather, my grandma to be moved, you could be charged 400 bucks a day. So it's basically negative billing on, on health care. Here's the health minister of Ontario, Sylvia Jones. The $400 was really a conversation about making sure that it is a consistent dollar value. We chose the 400 because we believe it is enough of a concern for people to have those challenging conversations with the placement coordinators about where do we want our loved one as they travel through their next journey. Their next journey? I told you the theme was exits. But their next journey, you're going to exit on a ramp 70 kilometers away from your loved ones. Don't you want your family? By? Isn't the whole point to be with your family? Now, they say they're going to try to free up beds as the healthcare system continues to deal with temporary emergency closures. But there are concerns, of course, that low-income families will be disproportionately affected. And Jones answered that allegation. That part is to, frankly, make sure that people understand a hospital bed is for an acute Patient. It is not for a long-term care patient. There is no social programming in our hospitals, nor should there be, because they are for acute patients. Which may be true, but you think the best solution is, you know, you could be moved up to 150 kilometers away or 70 kilometers away. How terrifying. How lonely. Laura Tamblin, by the way, we did ask to have um, Paul Calandra, the long-term care minister, Join us today. He was not available. But Laura Tamlin Watts, the founder and CEO of CanAge, Canada's National Seniors Advocacy Organization, is here. And I wanted to get her perspective. First of all, Laura, it has been the age of the proverbial dog that since we've spoken, I hope you are well. Um, what's your take on this strategy? They, there's a legitimate problem. Hospitals are overcrowded. They need beds. Is this the right solution? No, it's absolutely outrageous. Not only are they going to place people, and let's be clear, place is a kind word. They're going to evict people from their communities and dump them into a long-term care home, probably nowhere near family, friends, or their spouses, which for many will be the beginning of the end. People in long-term care only live typically on average about 18 months Think about winter roads. Think about your spouse that doesn't drive. For many, this will literally break up families and will be the last time anyone sees anyone. And then add to that the fact that this government has completely dispensed with rights. And so we are telling vulnerable patients and people with disabilities that you no longer get to consent to placement in long-term care. It's absolutely horrifying. Or, well, you, you can pay the 400 bucks a day. Now, speaking of Laura Tamlin Watts, can I give you a sample of the text that I'm getting? And I want you, 
Uh, Evan, I'm sorry. I agree with the government 100%. A hospital is a hospital. It's not a hotel. Quote, our public universal health care system is in tatters. Explain why we wouldn't all be better off with private care. Honestly, our system, including senior care, is getting worse. Oh, my God, Evan. How else are we going to get those beds? My mom was far. Just deal with it. 70 kilometers is nothing. What's your response? Well, first of all, 70 kilometers is Toronto to Hamilton, and you can't walk there. The second is this. And by the way, in traffic and gas, it's really not nothing. Well, and remember, if you have somebody who's older and disabled, it's likely that their spouse is too. And so the fact that your wife or your partner is in as far away as Toronto to Hamilton could be as far as Timbuktu. There's just no way to get there for people. And for people who aren't privileged to have a car or be able to drive, we don't have Greyhound buses. And it's not all in the Golden Horseshoe also. It doesn't take very far to get outside of any transit system at all. And so this, for many people, is impossible. Second, no one is in a hospital because they want to be there. This isn't about hospital patients versus long-term care residents versus this is mom. This is dad. These are communities in crisis. Hospitals are still able to put up the red flag and say, you know what, we can't take any more admissions and we're closing our ER. Long-term care can't do that. They have to accept people. And so... So what's the answer? So like, look, we do have an overcrowded hospital system. Mm -hmm. Hospitals are not built for long-term care. We all agree on that. What is the answer? Two answers. The first is more robust home care. So we're not talking about home care lights, like you get a little bath or, or you get a little bit of help. We're talking about nursing, doctors, occupational therapists coming into the home and doing that. We know that this works. We've done trials on it. We can do it. And that has got to be job one. The second is we have to address the fact that many people that are in hospital can't go to long-term care because they're eligible but not really placeable. They often have very heavy needs, psychiatric care needs especially, and so we can't keep using long-term care as a dumping ground. We need to open up some specialty care supports, particularly for people with complex but long-term care needs. And we've closed those. We Mm. need to open them up. 400 bucks a day if you refuse. Like, forget about it, right? It's comical. It's like it's a gun to your head. It's like you're it's you got, absolutely and you had, and, and you, you have be... no and, and so so you had and you would have no option. You can't say, well, I want to go to this one. It's like, no, you're gonna go wherever we find a spot within the radius, 70 clicks or 150. How, how do you go at night? Oh, I want to go to see my loved one after work and before my kids go to bed, I want to see my dad. I want to see my mom. Not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. It's gonna break up families, it's gonna cause death. And I, I can't overstate that. We know that when people are separated from their loved ones, as we saw all through COVID, where we said we would never do it again, they're not locking people up. They're dumping people out. Wow. Laura Tamlin Watts, founder and CEO of CanAge, uh, Canada's National Senior Advocacy Organization. i got to have you on Power Play as well. People are telling me now, couldn't they have buses arranged from the TO to the home like they do for families visiting? Like, There's so many other options here. I, this, is a, this is a new world. It's a new world. And if you've ever been in the long-term care world, and I know Laura has, um, this, is a, this is a very new thing. All right, Laura, thanks. I'm going to bring you back on. We are speaking about exits today. That's, the, that, that's maybe the most profound one. But wait till you hear about the Patagonia CEO, a multi-billion dollar exit, and giving away the company. Okay, I got to exit just for a minute. I'm just going to dash out. Stay with us. You do not want to miss this next story. 
time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the big show. How's everyone doing? We have lots going on on our theme today, which is exits. This one you get to remark on. Although I don't care if you want to talk about all the exits. Whether it's Roger Federer's retirement, whether it's the Queen, whether it's the conservative MP, Alain Reyes, who quit the conservative caucus and then got bombarded by tax, whether it was the Bloc Quebecois getting up and saying, you know what, we'll pay tribute to the Queen and then we're walking out, we're not sitting here for the rest of the tributes. Whether it's the long-term care homes where in people's last exit, their last 18 months on average in a long-term care facility, if uh, they're in a hospital, they basically will be shipped out to a long-term care facility in the southern Ontario, 70 kilometers away max or 150 kilometers away if you're in the north. Well, you get fine. I don't know. You just have to pay 400 bucks a day. Who can't afford that? one 855 or 71010. Here's the other exit I wanted to talk about. Patagonia's founder, a multi-billionaire, has decided he's going to give away the company. Now, this often happens. But he said he's going to give it away to fight climate. And all the profits will... Now go to climate to fight uh, climate change. Here's what he says, quote, Earth is now our only shareholder. If we have any hope for a thriving planet, much less business, it's going to take all of us to do what we can. This is Yvonne Schwinard. I never wanted to be a businessman. I started as a craftsman, making climbing gear for my friends and myself. Then I got into apparel. As we began to witness the extent of global warming and ecological destruction and our own contribution to it, Patagonia committed to using our company to change the way business was done. If we could do the right thing while making enough money to pay the bills, we could influence customers and businesses and change the system. So he writes, we started with our products using material that caused less harm. We gave away 1% of sales each year. We became a certified B Corp and a California Benefit Corporation. More recently in 2018, we changed the company's purpose. We're in business to save the planet. And he goes on to say, so I've wanted to do more. One option was to sell Patagonia and donate the money, but we couldn't be sure the new owner would maintain our values. We could take the company public. That would have been a disaster. Public companies are under too much pressure to create short-term gain at the expense of long-term vitality. So instead of going public, here's what we're going to do. We're going to use the wealth of Patagonia to protect the sole source of all wealth, the earth. 100% of the company's voting stock transfers are going to go to the Patagonia Purpose Trust created to protect the company's values and 100% of the non-voting stock had been given to the Holdfast Collective. The funding will come from Patagonia. Each year, the money we will make after reinvesting the business will be distributed as a dividend to help fight climate. Holy mackinac. So here's a billionaire. I guess he'll still be a billionaire. And instead of going public, instead of selling the company, He's decided to transfer his entire family's ownership to a trust. I guess, I don't know if he keeps his wealth or not. That, that's kind of an interesting question. The Schwinard family, which controlled the company until last month, no longer owns it. So they're done. They've transferred. So maybe they've lost their, their billions. 
What do you think of this? 71010. What a way to sort of say goodbye. Do I need a winter coat this year? No. Am I going to buy one anyway from Patagonia? Someone just texted me at 71010. Yes. Wow. Uh, 1-855-633-1010, 1-855-633-1010. Does this kind of value, what do you make of that? I think it, does it raise the bar for sustainability? Probably does, doesn't it? Uh, Cameron, what's up? Yeah, I'd just like to talk about, you know, the uh, hospitals. Our hospitals are overcrowded, as you said, et cetera, et cetera. And just because, you know, everybody doesn't have a right to live where they want to live whether it's in a in an apartment, a house, or in a long-term care facility. So to say that it's their right to live within a certain... I know it's tough, but you don't necessarily have that right. It's There are people out there who have spent money on vacations or they've gone... They haven't saved for retirement, bottom line. Well, they might not have the choices to go into care wherever they want. And there are others who have set money aside, and they can then afford... They've made that decision, and they can choose where they're going to long-term care. So as a society, if we're supporting these people and looking after them, there's a bit of give and take here. And I know it's not ideal, um, but that's the reality. And it's certainly with the growth of Toronto, the aging of the baby boomers, people, this is going to become a lot more common than we are are. Cameron, stay stay on the line. I want to converse with you for a minute. I, I, I really like your point. Um, because I, what are people's, what are people entitled to, right? What are the rights? What kind of society are we living in? And I actually think, I actually think it's a great question. I guess my question back to you would be, you're right from a practical point of view. Look, it's expensive. We have an aging population and we're still taking care of people in long-term care, but just not as close to where they lived or where they were sick. I guess my question is, should society provide better? Is that the only answer? Like I asked Laura Tamlin what, and she said, yeah, there's better answers on home care. There's better answers on long-term care and that we need more facilities and that society is presenting people like this is the only shot. You can, you might be moved 150 kilometers away from your loved ones for the last, say, eight months of your life. Is that really what we should be telling people that they get? If you're rich enough, by the way, you don't have to do it. You can afford private care. So the rich get close, the less rich... They don't. I, you just tell me. I, I know it's expensive, but I just, Mike, I want to back ask, is that the world we think we want to live in? Are you still there, Cam? Maybe not. Uh, George, what's up? Yeah, thanks for taking my call, Evan. I mean, it's great that Mr. Patagonia is pulling all of his, uh, I know that's not his name, but anyway, I'll call him that. Uh, giving all his money away, I'd respect him more if he pulled all his factories out of China using the slave labor camps. Stop virtue signaling by giving away all your billions. You made it off of slave labor in China. So pull those pull those uh, factories out of there and give uh, give the work. You know, give the, point out the fact that that's how you made your billions in the first place. Okay, um, I, I'm just looking. Patagonia clothing made where when? So the Patagonia has a big thing on their site. In China, they say about one week, once a week, our store gets a question. Where do you make their clothes? Are they made in China? We thought it would be helpful. First, Patagonia doesn't own farms, mills, or factories. Yet what's done in our name is not invisible to us. So they actually say, in 1996, Labor Rights Group revealed that Kathy Lee Gifford's 
clothing line for Walmart was sewn by 12-year-olds, we wondered what we were doing. They actually had a long post on this. They've actually came, they, they signed on to the Fair Labor Association, and Patagonia uh, visits them to verify conditions. So, I, I'm like, they have a long post on whether um, they, they apparently manufacture in 16 countries, including the U.S. So, I'm not, I'm just looking into that. Uh, but they are pretty open about um, where they manufacture, by the way. So, I mean, I'm not, I, I own no stock in these guys. I don't, I got no skin in the game here, but they're pretty open about it. And if you go to Patagonia.ca, uh, you can check that out. Thanks, George. Joe, what's up? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Down here in Windsor, we used to have a hospital called Riverview Hospital. It was a long-term rehab hospital specifically for seniors. Uh, somebody in the government decides to build a new campus, Tapor Campus, closes the long-term care hospital on Riverside Drive, a local uh, area down here, cut it in half, demolish half of the hospital, turn the other half into condos. So uh, the building's still being used. But the problem is, is when they transferred a bunch of patients over to the other campus, some of those folks died because of the transition in their age, et cetera. So, like, I mean, years ago when they did this, you could see the writing on the wall because... You get rid of a bunch of. It was uh, coming. Uh, say again. I, I, I'm just. I'm, I'm. I'm out of time here. But you're saying you could see the writing on the wall. It was all coming this way, eh? Anyway. Uh, Joe, Joe, I owe you some time. I got to take a break. Thanks for the call, Joe. I'll be right back. Bringing the story to life. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I told you the uh, theme of the day today would be uh, departures and exits. And we've talked about long-term care facilities. We've talked about Patagonia giving his apparel company to a trust. We've talked about Alain Reyes getting the boot from the Conservative Party and his exit and then the kind of swarming that he got, the Conservative Party had to apologize for. Roger Federer retiring after 24 years on the tour. But of course, the world is focused mostly on one exit. The long goodbye to Queen Elizabeth II. Members of Parliament in Canada had a special sitting this morning, session this morning. Prime Minister Trudeau uh, and all the leaders marking it. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say about the Queen. Our country came of age under her reign. It was Her Majesty who proclaimed and signed the Constitution Act of 1982 and our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. These pillars of our democracy help uphold the stability of our country and keep us free. And for the first time as leader of the Conservative Party, Pierre Polyev also paid tribute to the Queen. The Queen had a special place in our hearts, and we had a special place in hers. She spent a more official time here in Canada than in any other country save the United Kingdom. She would visit Canada over 20 times as Queen, and she was present at so many of our most important occasions. The Bloc Quebecois paid tribute 
to her, but not the institution. And then they said after the moment of silence, they walked out and they did. Tributes are still going on right now. And then the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, stood up. At the age of 21, she made the promise she would spend her whole life, whether it be long or short, fulfilling her duty. And for more than 70 years, she kept this promise. So that's the special session today. Meantime, the, the lineups, or they call them in the UK, the queue, to pay um, respects to the Queen is like 10 kilometers long. Anne-Marie Medawake is the host of CTV Your Morning. She's currently in London and witnessing the historic occasion. And Anne-Marie joins us now. Probably she's in a taxi somewhere. You may be in a cab, Anne-Marie. Give us, your, give us a sense of, of, of A-double-M on the move. What's going on? I think she's so in it, and I think we lost her in the cab. Anne-Marie Medawick literally is getting into a cab in London as she's trying to follow along the latest on the Queen. Now, the Queen right now is, of course, lying in state, and people are um, waiting hours, days to see her. And as the funeral arrangements are being made. We know that the state funeral will take place at Westminster Abbey on Monday, probably one of the biggest ceremonial events ever staged. There'll be a national two minutes of silence in the UK. And we know from Justin Trudeau today that he will be accompanied by governor's general. So a number of governor's general and a number of former prime ministers of course, the French president and the U.S. president are going to be there. A former officer awarded the George Cross after being shot 15 times will attend. So there's, these are people that the Queen wanted. And now I think we've finally reached uh, Anne-Marie Medawake. <laughs> On the move, Anne-Marie, in a cab. Where, where are you? Give us a sense of, of Anne-Marie Medawake on the move. Where are you? Okay, we are in a black cab. You are correct. We're on Victoria Street in downtown London. We have just left the front of Westminster Abbey. Uh, they have closed off most of that area. So the reason I'm doing this on the cab is it is very difficult to find a cab, and it's getting more difficult as more barricades come up. Of course, they're getting ready for the world leaders to come, as well as for millions of people. Uh, they expect to arrive in the city on top of the millions of people that already live here, plus seven. It's supper time here. So I grabbed a cab when we found one. You do it. No, no, listen. If you can flag a cab at this moment in London, you get in that cab. What's it been like? Give it, I mean, you've seen so much. We've all seen these mm-hmm. scenes, the, the Queen's coffin and, and, and the, the crown and, and obviously Prince, uh, you know, the, the new king. What has struck mm-hmm. you about what you're seeing and, and the huge lineups? I will tell you what has stood with me today. So we've been going since about 6 o'clock this morning, for about 12 hours today. We've been out to the palace. We've been to Westminster. We've walked the lines of people in Lambeth Bridge. Here's what stood out to me today from the lineups. People we've been talking to have been in line for at least four hours. They know they're going to be in there for another four more. So it's going to be cold. They're going to be hungry. And I asked if they're willing to stay the night. They said, absolutely. They pack knapsacks. I said, why is this so important to you? And they all say the same thing. Because she's our queen, it's important to pay respects. We like the queens in Canada, for the most part, if you're a royalist. Uh, you know, we're used to coming out to her events or following it on the news. But this is dedication of a whole other level. And the mood of people, Evan, in those lineups is, is joyous. It's friendly. They make, they make what they call lineup buddies. Uh, because they're all there for the same reason, for their love and dedication to the Queen. 
Tell us then um, what, give us some of the sense. I mean, I have seen the overwhelming support there. Uh, there's been debate all over about the future uh, of the mm-hmm. monarchy. Is that, is that a question that people are talking about or not now? Oh, they are. So every time when you're speaking to people and they talk about what they remember about the queen, they tell you how much they love her, and then they're very quick to add at the end, which makes you realize how ingrained the monarchy is to people. But now we have King Charles. He'll do a good job. Uh, when I ask, you know, will you be as passionate for Charles as you will be for the Queen, I get mixed answers. People either give you a, well, we'll wait and see, or we're not sure, or yes, he's waited a long time. He's had a good example. We're in good hands. What's been interesting to see, and some interviews that we've done today that will air tomorrow on your morning, uh, are about Queen Consort Camilla. And you'll remember, Evan, the headlines about her uh, and Charles, I mean, they called her the Rottweiler. She was reviled in this country. Now there's this great fondness. For Queen Consort Camilla, people are already talking about dropping the consort. Who needs it? We'll keep her as Queen Camilla. You know, 10 years ago, the thought of people having to say Queen Camilla, they wouldn't even have been able to form their mouth around it. They were dead. They were devoted still to Diana. But that seems to have shifted. And people are supportive of this new monarch and of the woman who has stood beside him steadfast. Uh, and as someone said today, she seems to bring out the best in King Charles and, and that's what won the Queen over. That's what won Prince Philip over. Mm. And it seems to have won the rest of the country over. I will say this. I mean, whatever else people say, that's a true love story. I mean, they've been in love their whole lives. I know he got married to Princess Diana. He always loved her. She always loved him. And they've been together 17 years since. Like, it's, it's, and they a, make it's, each other laugh. You, it's a genuine love story. On these events in Canada. Yeah, you've seen them in these events in Canada, right? They giggle together all the time. They find the same thing funny. Listen, when I talked to Tina Brown earlier this year, she tells the story. I mean, at one point, Camilla wasn't invited to something that King Charles had been invited to, and so she was told that she could come, but she had to sit at the back of the church. Well, look at her now. She is Queen Camilla. Well, it's, a, it's been a remarkable uh, drama, but, but I, you're hoping that kind of the internal dramas, which will never, of course, abate with the royal family, abate a little bit in this uh, uh, kind of solemn but celebration, solemn celebration maybe is the best description for what's happening. Yeah. Anne-Marie Medawake, host of CTV Your Morning. Not only can she report tirelessly for 12 hours, folks, she can flag <laughs> a cab and do an interview in it. She is in London Thanks, my friend. Hip, hip, hurrah for me, Evan. Thank hip, you. hip, hurrah for the queen herself, Anne-Marie Medway. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Evan. My good friend. She's awesome. Uh, overhyped and underplayed is coming up. That means Scott Reed's here. Yes, we'll talk about the queen. We'll talk about Alain Reyes and the apology he received. And I'm going to ask him about my king, Roger Federer. All right, lots to come. Stay with us. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. <laughs> Scott Reed is here for overhead. I'm laughing because Sam, Sam, you come. I'm laughing. I'll bring on Scott for this. Scott Reed, time. Well, let me just do the intro, and then I'll tell you what's going on at the break here. Scott Reed, overhyped and underplayed. <laughs> Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. Reed, CTV News political commentator, we need your advice. How are you? 
Not that. Are you holding it together here, man? You're no. on national radio, you know. I know. Here's the thing. Type your shoelaces. So, you know, like, you know, I'm, I know you're like, you know, so I got the, my wife's away for a couple of weeks, big whoop, and my kids are gone, so I'm an empty nester. And so I'm getting some, uh, I had a little roof leak, like among the many situations in my life. So I got a little situation, so there's like water damage, so I'm getting it fixed. And so yesterday I told the, uh, the, uh, the good listeners on the big show here that I'd let some painters in my house alone, right? I like left I go, okay, everyone just like get the job done. So they're doing it. And one of the sort of the lead painters, a young woman, nice woman. And she's been great. She's letting out the dog puddle. She turns out she's fantastic. And she says, look, there's a part of your internal, like w- that she's supposed to repair. She's not drying. You still might have a roof leak. So you got to call the roofer. So I called the roofer. And they can't come for a day, but that's fine. But I I also then realized that while they're repairing that, I had a little damage in the upstairs bathroom, water damage, that I wanted her to fix up. But it's in the, like, the master bedroom washroom. But my wife's away. And I'm alone in the house. So I'm like, listen, uh, so she comes in at 8.30 this morning. The two guys she's working with are not here yet. I'm going to work. And I go, look, this was one more spot. Uh, Do you mind (laughs) coming upstairs to the bed it's just so gross god i don't know what to do so i was like i have to show her the spot it's in the washroom but i said to sam it's so awkward like what are you in a bathrobe no i'm not uh, in a bathrobe i'm not in a bathrobe no no i'm not gross i'm so hyper aware of sending off any signals i'm like my wife's away my kid like i'm you know like over hyping the wife thing but I just felt a little awkward. You know what I mean? Like, here's like, a younger gee, I woman. I don't think I can pay for all this painting. Well, there was some other <laughs> way we could settle accounts. <laughs> okay. Samantha, Sam is just howling. It was so awkward. I'm like, look, it's just in. The... And then, so I walk up the stairs and she doesn't follow me. I'm like, it's okay. You can, you can. <laughs> Creep City. Well, I know. I'm telling you, I tried everything I can to deploy the anti-creep vibe. Like, but what do you do? You're alone in the house. The dogs. I'm like, you know, my wife's not here. My, yeah, and, but she would be. And like, I, it, uh, anyway, that's why Sam's laughing because it's, it's another one of these bachelor kind of fiascos that I keep having. Bachelor fiascos. Am I well, over? I, am I overhyping it or underplaying it? That's my point. I think you're. I, th- I think you're <laughs> overhyping the assurance you're offering this young woman that you you were well intended. I think you're underplaying the vibe of weirdness you were exhibiting. So. I hope I wasn't. Honestly, I know you because I know you know the neighbor who's in love with you. Like I know if it was you, it would just be overwhelming. But with me, I think she was. Anyway, the whole thing passed without any incident, folks. But it is 2022, so every encounter, you have to triangulate the potential political landmines here, including that. Uh, let's move along before I get into any more crap here. Uh, overhyped or underplayed the agonizing departure of Roger Federer at the age of 41, 20 majors, 24 years. Uh, I don't think you can overhype it because I love the guy. You? I'm with you. I, I don't think you can overhype what the contribution this guy's made to tennis. It's it's not, if I want to be, I'll start with a negative, I guess, which is kind of crummy. Uh, it's it's not, he did not do for the game of tennis what what Tiger, his most obvious contemporary, did for the game of golf. Because, you know, they're, just, they're not comparable in that sense. But well, he probably re- even Serena did for tennis, to be candid. Right. 
Um, that's right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, cause she broke down barriers and probably yeah, 100%. opened up the game to a whole demographic of people that it wasn't really, uh, tracking with prior to that. But the guy is an all time champion overcame all sorts of hurdles. Um, and more than anything, conducted himself a class and professional professionalism throughout, like it busts my bun that he now stands with one less grand slam than that jerk Jokovic who, you know, lacks all of his class, all of his courtesy, um, all of his professionalism. But, you know, I, I think it's those qualities. It doesn't matter how many people surpass him. I think it's those qualities that are, that are uh, going to give us. Plus it's a great rivalry with Nadal, right? Like it's, it's well, Nadal born, born, right? Well, it's, it's Nadal and Federer. Don't you think? Yeah. I look for, First of all, it's Djokovic. Second of all, well, I didn't support what he did in Australia. I actually, he's not vaccinated, but the U.S. Open was stupid not to let him go in. That was dumb. It's over in the U.S. So yeah, I thought that was, knob. that was, ex- it's not just about that. I like, know, but a- they, they was, that was stupid and, 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 and punishing. And I actually felt for him, which is, you know, I'm not a big fan of his because I think he's desperate to be loved, but he's a, I'm with you. Look, I'm a Federer guy. My wife's an Adal person. And, and by the way, it's, you can now say it busts my paint cans. Uh, overhyped or underplayed, the apology that the Conservative Party issued to Alain Reyes, the Conservative MP who left the party, doesn't like Pierre Polyev, and then he got bombarded after the Conservative Party literally issued um, a, ma- a text demanding people write to him and tell him to resign. They had to apologize for it. Overhyped or underplayed? It's, it's probably overhyped in the amount of attention around Parliament Hill and national political media that it's getting, but it, it, it could turn out to be underplayed in this way. If this razor fast instinct is an instinct that goes uncurbed on the part of the Polyev operation, then it's definitely going to be underplayed because I think one of the biggest challenges that he has is to be likable. And if you look, you know, we covered the convention the other night and his speech, you know, he talked about his family, talked about his wife's family, talked about that personal story. Those are steps, smart, smart steps toward making him more likable, but it's the causticness. It's the, you know, it, it's the diminishing of David Aiken the other day. It's that stuff that makes him unlikable. And this stuff is part of that. So he and his operation have got to curb their impulse, their natural impulse um, to be jerky, because if they don't, they're not going to like the character assessment people osmotically withdraw about him. And uh, so that's that, you know, I, I think it, right now it's being overblown somewhat, but they, they have to watch what the underlying truth of this is. It is interesting, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, if all you got is a hammer, everything's a nail kind of thing. Uh, yeah, yep. they just hammered this guy, and he said it's intimidation. And what they did in the end was they actually elevated him. He would have quietly left. It would have been a Quebec story, but now it's become a national story. That's a mistake. They can't. This is the thing. I mean, look at the way he talked about Jean Charest, who's an opponent who carries the same party membership card as he does. So, you know, you know like their their immediate impulse is, sorry, if you cross me, you're the enemy, and I treat all my enemies the same, which is to say I burn down your house, I take everything, and I put your family, uh, you know, on a cart. And they, they just they, – there's got to be uh, a little bit of moderation on these guys when it comes to the way they conduct themselves. Now, it doesn't have to be in terms of the issues they follow and all that, but in the manner in which they conduct themselves. They, they go from zero to 60, and they do it every single time. Um. 
overhyped or underplayed, the Blue Jays' run to the playoffs versus the beginning of the NFL? What is more overhyped? What is more underplayed? Oh, definitely, definitely the beginning of the NFL season is more overhyped. I think it's a bit of a messy, opaque uh plotting opening to the season. You got the Deshaun Watson example, which covers us and, you know, it's just in glory. Um, you've got, uh, you know, the, the whole Tom Brady coming back. Now we're talking as much about his marriage as we are about football. So I think that the NFL narrative at this first week or two of the season is a pretty mixed bag where the joy, the joy of the Toronto blue Jays is almost unfiltered. I mean, they remain a young team. They remain a fun oh, team. So fun. There's so much fun, right? So, like, 100%. Why aren't the stands Okay, I got 10, 20 seconds here. All right, I got 15 seconds. Why aren't the stands filled for this bloody match? They got a game at 3 o'clock against Tampa. I cannot understand why the stadium is not full to see this great team. Anyway, listen, uh, thank you uh, for all your advice, Scott. I love you. I'll take a break. Bring your act up. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Doug Rushkoff gets an invitation to do a speech. It's in California. He's going to get paid a lot of money. Doug's been... I've known Doug Rushkoff for like 25 years. He's written a lot of books on technology, and he's like a bit of a guru of technology. And he thinks he's just going to give a speech, and he gets on a plane, and he's getting paid huge amounts of money, and then he's met by a limousine, and then he gets in the limo. He's like, this is weird. And then they drive three hours into the desert, and he's like, well, who the hell is out here? And then the private jets arrive, and he's like, what is this? And it looks like a James Bond villain's outfit. And he gets in there and he's got his private, not just a suite, but like an area, like a cabana kind of sitch. And then he gets ushered to the speech. And it's not a speech of a, of a big crowd. It's just like five super rich billionaires. And instead of them wanting to hear his speech, they're grilling him about how they're going to survive what they call the event. And this moment is so profoundly impactful that Doug decides to write a book, which is out today, called Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. It actually came out September 6th, and Doug's written like 19 other books, and he joins me now. My dear friend and guru, Doug Rushkoff is here. Hi, bud. Hey, Evan. How are you doing? Holy Mac and I got into this book and I could not stop from that opening scene into when it dawns on you like, what the hell? So just describe like you're just that that moment. You're like, I'm into a new thing here. Well, I, I mean, it started because I, I thought I was going to be taken to like a stage to do a talk like they were going to mic me up. I'm in my green room, like my private green room, you know, trying to get myself in the mood. How am I going to address, you know, a room full of rich bankers about, you know, the, their evil ways and turn them to the light. And they bring these five guys into the green room and they sit around the little table and they start like, and it's like, uh, uh, 
it's almost like, you know, Betamax or VHS kind of questions. Like they're just betting. It was, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, augmented reality or virtual reality. And then right. it was like Alaska or New Zealand. And I'm thinking, oh my God. Like, what does that mean? I'm serious. What do you mean Alaska? <laughs> so what when they go, where's Alaska? the safest? Where's the safest place for me to build my bunker to wait out the event, Alaska or New Zealand? Because those are like the two main places that the uh, that the wealthier are building their their apocalypse shelters. OK, you know, but they, slow down. <laughs> what is the, you say? You just said this word they, to wait out the event. They actually use the term the event. Yeah, that's their euphemism because they don't know what the event is going to be just that it's coming. Right. Something bad. So the event is either like, you know, climate crisis and catastrophe or forest fires or an economic uh, collapse and, and uh, uh, all the associated unrest or a nuclear accident or a pandemic. This was before COVID even, you know, a pandemic or, a, a, you know, who knows, an asteroid, whatever it's going to happen. But in most of the cases, it was, you know, an event that's some result of something that that we're doing, you know, Incredible. that, that <laughs> and they're ready. So these five billionaires are hiring people like you. They're flying into this like bond facility. They're grilling you about how to survive the event. This is like unbelievable. So now you must be thinking this is crazy. Now tell us, and as I speak to Doug Rushkoff, he's the author of this new book and it's been one of the, uh, Kirk has called it one of the most anticipated books of 2022, The Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. They start then, their questions start getting very specific about like, like they have their own private security guards and they're worried in the event that they're, they're going to get murdered by them. What happened? Tell me where they're going here. Well, it's interesting. I mean, they were talking about their scenarios. I wanted to hear what are they talking about? And I'm, I'm first I'm testing them on like, so where are you getting your water from? Where are you? How are you going to grow your food? What if your, you know, special little topsoil patch gets gets, uh, uh, you know, contaminated by fungus and all? And then they're talking about security, you know, because obviously if, if there's only, you know, a couple of hundred billionaires in the world in these bunkers, what about the rest of us? Right. <laughs> We're going to be trying to get in. So they're all hiring, you know, Navy SEALs who are going to fly out at a moment's moment, moment's notice, you know armed to the teeth is that but true like they're legitimately hiring they, they've got teams yes, of navy seals on standby yes and actually after i wrote the first little piece about this i wrote a piece in medium and and, and the guardian of london about the experience i got emails from the people who are the kind of employment agents for navy seals saying oh you know please let the billionaires know we've got staff and all but but what i asked them was why do you think if the event that they're thinking really happens, why do you think these Navy SEALs are going to stay loyal to you when your money's going to be worthless? Right? <laughs> why, why, right. Why? So they think they-, they think they could like they get the bunker in and there's like 10 Navy SEALs. I'm like, why don't we just kill the guy? Well, exactly. If society ends, like, and this is the sad part of the book, most of these guys are what you call, uh, what we would call accelerationists. They're not really afraid of this event so much as they are fantasizing. They want to wipe the slate clean, kind of, you know, control, alt, delete civilization and start over, you know, in their own way with their own, you know, clones and 
3D printers and whatever they've built. But the, the, they had no real answer for that. Like they were saying, well, maybe we could get shock collars or put little, you know, implants <laughs> in these guys, you know, or oh I'll be the only one who knows the combination to the safe. And what I ended up telling them only, only half facetiously was, you know, what if you'd start treating your security guys really well now? Like take your head of security, pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today, and maybe he won't shoot you in the bunker tomorrow. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now you end up speaking to Doug Rushkoff, by the you end up describing like this. So you have this one moment and then you realize this is something deeper. Like we've all read about the prepper culture, people prepping for the event, the apocalypse, whatever it comes, the zombification, the radiation, the climate crisis, whatever it is, the collapse of civilization. These are the billionaires who are ready to do it. But you describe it as, quote, the mindset. What is that? Yeah, well, it's it's kind of a Silicon Valley belief that humanity is a problem to be solved with technology. And where it gets them is 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 the mindset is this belief that with enough money and technology, you can escape the catastrophes you're creating by using money and technology in that way, right? That they could somehow build a car that can go fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. They're literally, we're going to create and profit from the very things that will destroy everybody, but then we'll actually still be able to survive, but like in our bunker or go to Mars. And it's like the Elon Muskification. If you can get to Mars, we'll wait out the apocalypse and come or something. Is that really what it right. is? Yeah, it's exactly what it is. They they understand that they're destroying the world and our social relationships and really everything by doing the things they're doing. Like you just, I just saw a piece by our friend Cory Doctorow uh, about Epson printers, that there's these printers that they they are pre-programmed to freeze after a certain number of pages. They just stop working because they want you to get a new printer. And they justify it that, oh, there's a part that might wear out. So we, we protect you by, by locking you out. You're going to have to buy a new one. The person who's running that company knows we're going to have to dig more rare earth metals out of the ground, make more plastic, take the old printer, stick it on a toxic waste dump. But in his head, he's thinking, I'm going to make more money with the planned obsolescence of this thing and be able to stay one step ahead of the devastation I'm creating by doing business in this way. It's like the guy that invented uh, the shampoo rinse and repeat. You add the word repeat, you double sales and shampoo. Like <laughs> you're a genius. Uh, okay. Right. Um, okay. So the, the question now becomes, is this a group of five billionaires that you happen to trip over in their crazy bunker? Or is this a pervasive theory among the ultra rich and in places like Silicon Valley, where the very people who are seen as the heroes, the Thomas Edison's of our time, are actually planning, not expecting the demise and secretly planning their own survival. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a short break here. Doug Roshkoff, the author of 20 books, but his latest book just out September 6th is called Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. What are they doing? And more importantly, what does this mean for you? Doug says it best. What about the rest of us? And is the apocalypse really coming or are they actually actively trying to make it come? Doug Rushkoff on the other side of a break. You cannot miss this. Stay with us. Instant access to real people. 
real stories. The Evan Solomon Show is on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So I've known Doug Rushkoff for like 20 years. He's written 20 books and a great guy, writes about technology and, and the impact on society. And his new book, yeah, I'm going to read you the, the description. And because this is a book, one of those few books that actually lives up to the hype. The hype on this, listen to this. Five mysterious billionaires summon theorist Doug Rushkoff to a desert resort for a private talk. The topic, how to survive the event, the societal catastrophe they know is coming. Rushkoff comes to understand that these men are under the influence of what he calls the mindset, a Silicon Valley style certainty that they and their cohort can break the laws of physics, economics, and morality and escape a disaster of their own making as long as they have the right money, enough money in the technology. It is called survival of the richest escape fantasies of the tech billionaires and Doug Rushkoff joins us. Yes, this book drew, drew me in. I love this book because it's so creepy. It is like the very people, Doug, that we celebrate, like the Elon Musks, Peter Thiels that have given us the biggest tech stocks, the biggest innovations that are supposed to make life better and save the planet and bring on some utopia, the great techno utopia hope. And secretly, they're all like, actually, the world's going to hell. <laughs> and we got to survive. We will do anything. So don't tell anyone. But the dirty secret is we're going to all bunker out in New Zealand in our billion dollar bunker with our high security forces and hope they don't slit our throats. Like yep. what the hell is going and on? Not, not only that, but they believe that they are, in fact, responsible for all that bad stuff, <laughs> the pollution that they're making, the social unrest they're creating, the political divides, the economic inequality, that these are, these are the seeds <laughs> of their, you know, this is the, the fruit of their own, of their own activity. And, and in some ways, you know, I mean, part of why I wanted to write the book was I feel like the reason why, why it's so, it's so shocking is because all of us have a little bit of this mindset, you know, particularly during COVID, you know, all of a sudden I didn't feel so guilty about my Amazon Prime account and my DoorDash deliveries or Grubhub or Fresh Star, whatever you've got, you know, coming. It's like each of us in our own little bunker protected from COVID. And I understand that all right. of these technologies we're using, our iPhones and our websites and all, they're all designed to build this kind of digital bubble around ourselves to help us feel safe from the, you know, the dangers of the and world. And if you had more money, masses. you'd build a nicer bubble. Like you could, you kind of get it. Right. But when you see that the guys who are best at building the bubbles actually believe that, that nothing good will come of this, that, well, not for us anyway, that, that, that the, the end game, they're all the, they're children, right? Most of these people were plucked from college as freshmen, right? And given a bunch of money to build their companies. They didn't take history or economics or they didn't take ethics. They haven't grown up, you know, so they really think it's a game. It's like a, a, a Marvel movie and it has to have an end game, right? They are, in some ways, they are wishing for this apocalypse. They want it to happen. They, they took an idea from science fiction called accelerationism. It's the same idea that Steve Bannon has here in the U.S. that let's just tear it down and start again. So how pervasive is it? Like, again, I'm trying to figure it out. Was it just the five billionaires that you that summoned you to the weird Bond-esque villain thing? Or was it or did you realize actually they're they're part of a pretty large cohort that have a ton of money and a ton of power? Well, it's it's they're they're unique in that they're, you know, among the few 
couple of hundred people who are truly billionaires and can play out the fantasy to its end. But their way of seeing the world is very pervasive in Silicon Valley. I mean, Elon Musk's ideas, I mean, they, they, he's got millions of followers on Twitter who <laughs> believe his every word, you know, and there's it's the same sort of mindset that would lead us to say invest in Bitcoin. I mean, what is Bitcoin? Most simply, it's a way of burning the real planet, right? In in a way to show your faith and belief in a digital nothing, in a digital symbol, right? So it's literally just turning atoms into bits. And there's millions of people that do that. And that's all part of the mindset. We know we can't keep doing that. We can't just burn the planet in order to have a digital wallet filled with digital money. But we go on and we do it knowing eventually we're going to hit a wall. Okay. So where does it go? Like, first of all, these people seem smart. How are they accurate in their prediction? That's the first question. Like, you know, these are, these are not dumb people. Maybe they're onto something. Maybe the end is nigh. They're accurate in their prediction as long as they keep doing what they're doing. I mean, these guys know they're not dumb. I talk to them, the guys who are making these awful apps for your kids that are on the iPhones and the iPads, yet they send their kids to Rudolf Steiner, whatever, Waldorf schools at organic pasture farms and don't let them touch a computer. So they're. Oh, that's right. Oh, they're like computers are great, but their kids are going to like the. You know, the, the the private school in Bali where there's no electricity. Right. And eventually, though, it catches up. Right. Eventually it catches up. And that's what's in the back of their head is how long can I stave this off, you know, before before it gets to me and into my home. So when they imagine the end of everything and an apocalypse bunker, then again, it's a relief for them in a way. I mean, they watch they watch shows like The Walking Dead. Those aren't horror movies for them, right? These are, oh, look, these are, are those returned are planning, to simpler times. Yeah, those are and planning documents. Okay, so what about yeah. the rest of us? Like, what's the well, answer here to the, well, the, to, the, to the mindset that you call? I mean, the answer is, I mean, I funny, I think about my dad. He was raised, you know, in the tenements of the Lower East Side. And he always used to tell me, Doug, you know, I worked hard and made money so I could get out of that out of that neighborhood and grow you and, you know, raise you somewhere, somewhere good. And all of us have in our heads, you know, if your neighborhood is bad, what do you do? You make money to get out. Well, what if the whole world is that neighborhood, right? If you're a billionaire tech bro, you think I'm going to earn enough money or get enough technology to get off this planet, to seastead in the middle of the ocean, get away from those masses. But if you're one of us, you realize, no, don't pursue that. Don't, don't, uh, uh, try to follow them off the planet or onto the island or into your bunker or off with Mark Zuckerberg into the metaverse. Now turn around and actually make the world a place that you don't have to escape from. You know, if we spend less of our energy trying to escape from the others and instead improving the lot, our collective lot, then the world is, is no longer a place you have to leave. You have to get in the bunker. The threats are real, climate, <laughs> nuclear. Like, it, it actually is kind of a scary place. But as you say, you know, if you think there's alternatives, you know, I feel like you're either a renter or a buyer, you know, like a renter mm. treats home like, ah, I'm not going to be here for long. So they don't, they let it go. If you actually own it, it's like they're treating planet Earth like they can rent it because they, they have other options there. Uh, or so they think. But the reality is they don't. And that was what I tried to tell them at that first meeting. Dudes, your security guards are going to shoot you the first chance they get. 
you know, and tried to put that little fear of God into them just a little bit. I mean, I remember there was one, there's a really funny story in the book. I was at one of these uh, conferences and a guy came up to me, a, a big guy at one of the social networks. And he was like, I've been reading the stuff you're writing about artificial intelligence. And are you sure you should be so vocal about, you know, being concerned about AI? I'm like, why? He says, well, you know, eventually the AI is going to be in charge. What do you think they're going to do with you? And he said that Jeez. he doesn't say anything at all about AI in his writing. He never posts about AI because he doesn't want them to know how he feels. And I said, well, if AIs are so smart and doing all that machine learning and statistical analysis, aren't they going to be able to infer from the lack of posts about AI how you actually feel? And his eyes widen and his <laughs> jaw drops like, oh my God, right? So these guys, they are smarter than us, but they're dumber than us at the same time. They are so short-sighted because they think, they took this guy, Stuart Brand, or, or Stuart Brand a great kind of- uh, I interviewed uh, him 20 years tech. ago. Yeah, that's right. right? They took him at his word. He said, we are as gods and may as well get good at it. You know, and they all believe that they are operating one level above us mere mortals. Peter Thiel wrote a book called From Zero to One, that you have to be one order of magnitude above everybody else. Or they use derivatives rather than mm. stocks because it's derivative, one level above. The whole digital realm is like one level hmm. removed from reality. This and that's where they want to live. But that's not where life happens. Doug Rushkoff is the author of the new book out September 6th, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. You can think about it like a whistleblower on the secret fantasies of the super rich in Silicon Valley and where their tech profits are really going. And really, what we got to think about is that the mindset that is going to determine your future. Doug Rushkoff, love having you on the show. Good luck with this book. This is a barn burner of a book. I, I really think it's an essential piece of reading, Doug. Thanks. Thank you. Doug Rushkoff, Survival of the Richest. Check this book out. All right, uh, Risking It All with Dan Riskin coming up next. Stay with us. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Uh, welcome back to the show. It is the Thursday segment, and he was on yesterday with his brand new kids book, which is a hit already. But it's back to science for risking it all with Dan Riskin. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. Dan Riskin. Are you were actually on Tuesday. I didn't realize that. How are you, good. my friend? How, has the book taken off? Well, we had a nice little book launch on Tuesday night at a local bookshop here in Toronto, and uh, I saw a bunch of people I hadn't seen in a while, and some people came that have just heard me on the radio and thought they'd get a, a copy, so that was nice. And yeah, I just I hope the book resonates with people. It's too early to say whether it's taken off or not, and everybody mm. said nice things, but I'm the author. Nobody's going to say right. Read your book and it's terrible. Can I? Can Anyways, I? Te I was testing you here uh, to see how smart you actually are, and you've just failed. You've oh. just absolutely failed. Would you like to know what the test was? Yeah, I do. Okay, I was testing you because I purposely said, 
how was the book launch? But I did not say the title of the book, hoping that you would say, well, God, oh, that idiot didn't good. say. And so you're like, oh, I had my book launch. But you got to sell. You see, this is what I'm oh, – right. the book is called Fiona the Fruit Bat by Dan Riskin, beautifully illustrated by Rachel uh, – is it Kigi? Tsutsi. It's, it's, Tsutsi. A, it's okay. spelled with Qs, but the pronunciation is Tsutsi. Tsutsi. Yeah. And so it's called Fiona the Fruit Bat, just out from Greystone Books. That's how you do it, man. That was You've well just... done. But maybe I played the long game where I said, if I don't mention it, he's going to really draw it out and say Fiona the Fruit Bat multiple times. So that ah! when people hear Fiona the Fruit Bat, they'll know that's the book they need. And then I was thinking, I'll do that. And then he'll be like, he'll like now one up me and he'll be like, oh yeah, it's Fiona the Fruit Bat. And he'll say it like four times, like Fiona the Fruit Bat. And then, and then this whole thing is just like a, a, it's, a, loop. a it's like a game theory yeah uh, yeah. yeah it's yeah. good it's it's, it's, good. it's a it's a positive feedback loop and those yeah. are deadly as we all know yeah that, that's true but it could be a, a mobius strip yeah Ooh, i just I like thought that. i'd throw that in for your science brain sure sure we can hold it in a klein bottle which is the three-dimensional version of a mobius strip it's oh like a God. bottle that doesn't have an inside scientists say, yeah this is like a mobius strip club where we just talk science <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is a funny name for a strip club. I've yeah, never heard be. that before, but you that's can, a good idea. Moby a strip club where you can never get out. Which, <laughs> you can check out anytime like a, you like, but yeah. then you're upside down in the ceiling. Okay, yeah. so let, let can we can we like okay, if you the fruit bat since you've written a kids book, let's talk about mm. kids. And actually, uh, as both of us have kids, uh soothing a baby is always oh. the kind of great enigma of the young parent. But oh. science may come to the rescue. What's up? And this is one of these things that, like, I would have read this before I was a parent and been like, okay, here are the instructions. If you do this, it'll work every time. I'm just telling all the parents how to do their job. But having been humbled by having three babies go through this house and trying to get them to go to sleep when they don't want to, I know that this is all just friendly suggestions from the scientists. But they do have data to back up that they've found a method to make that baby go to sleep. They have, they've figured out the 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 clue the the piece is missing and the way that they came to it was they looked at other mammals so if you look at something like a lion or a wolf or a monkey or whatever they'll often the mom will often come over and pick up the baby and move it to a new place and if it's doing that it might be because there's something dangerous happening and that is a bad time for the baby to make a lot of noise and so the the researchers hypothesize that there's this mammalian instinct in babies that if you get picked up and carried away to somewhere else you don't make any noise. It's just against your evolutionary best interests because hmm. there may be something dangerous you're being moved away from. Oh, that's so interesting. They, it's a neat idea. And that so they tested idea. this. What they did is they had moms pick up their baby that was crying or pick up their baby that was crying and walk with them. And they also tried putting a baby in a stroller, but not walking. And then they tried putting a baby in a stroller and walking. And the best of all these was to pick up the baby and walk with it. And when they did that, uh, if you walk for five minutes, you you can't cut it short. It's got to be at least five minutes. 46% of the crying babies were asleep. And if you wait another minute after that five-minute walk and just stand still holding that baby, you get another 18% asleep. So now you've got like two-thirds of babies that fall asleep by this six minute method. So wow. that's what I know. It, it sounds like too good a promise. And, and there's a very tired parent listening right now, like, please, <laughs> this better work. But two thirds is not every time, right? So don't don't get mad at me. Although, you know, when you're so sleep deprived, I'm sure you'll be mad at everybody. But um, this might be the key. I love that. Now, now I used to try that. I remember when my daughter couldn't sleep when she, you know, and they're teething that people, newborns always sleep. Oh. And like, I have that, but you always say, how's the baby? Incredible. 
she sleeps so well. And you're like, yeah, right. Just wait. They're not teething. Like, no, no, my baby's one of those rare babies. It's like, yes. no baby does. Like, every way they start teething and they can't sleep. So I remember once I tried that method. And so I decided, because we had two, we had two kids 18 months apart. And so I decided to take my daughter, Maisie, out in the car. It was Saturday night. It was like 1 in the morning. She's freaking out. And I'm going to uh, drive around because driving – yeah, I th- was, it was like, I guess it's like this. Right. And yeah. I finally get, I was in living, we were living in Toronto and we get on the, uh, the, the Gardner expressway, like the lakeshore there. Yeah. And, and she finally falls asleep. It's like 1231 in the morning or something. And I get back and I get stopped by ride patrol cause they're pulling people off, you know, no. and two co- the cop comes in and he goes, and I'm like, oh my God, this kid has been crying for an hour. If this guy wakes up my baby and he flashes his flashlight in the car, right? And he's like, have you been drinking, sir? I said, put that flashlight down. I'm a father. This kid just fell asleep and do not wake my baby up. I have nothing to <laughs> And the guy goes, hey, Joe, get over here. He goes, this guy's like, I got a two-year-old at home. How long have you been driving? And I'm like, a, like an hour. And the guy's like, ah, oh, Joe puts his on the dryer. And like literally I ended up having a conversation with two young cops, three young dads, yeah. all sharing how to put their baby down. And if we'd had your science, I would have been able just to walk around for six minutes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, and that movement, everybody knows that helps. But the other piece of it that comes out of this study is the gentle letting go of the baby, right? So, okay, I've got a sleeping baby I'm holding. How do I get it in the crib so I can go to sleep, right? And right, so that right. is another piece that they looked at. And they found that if you move the baby too soon, they were they had little monitors on the baby that were tracking their heart rate. And the baby doesn't get into a deep sleep right away when it falls asleep. You got to wait a little bit. So uh, there, the op- here's a really neat piece. It's not the being put down on the surface that wakes them up that that brings them that that might wake them up it's the being detached from mummy they were able to show on the heart reading when the moment is that they arouse and it's not the the touching their back on the bed it's the being separated from mom so that's the delicate spot you got to be really careful with but their suggestion is after your five minute walk sit with the kid or stand stay still for eight minutes and then try the transfer if you do it too soon they're on that edge. They might wake back up. But if you wait eight minutes, they should be in a deeper sleep. And that's going to improve your odds of being able to seal the deal, get the baby in the crib, and then get out of there. Six minutes of walking, eight minutes of standing. Five minutes walking, eight minutes of wow. of holding. Yeah, That's a... Uh, and eventually, I, I, I'm a, like, I know people hate the Ferber method, but you got to teach your kids how to sleep. Like, it's a yeah. big deal. I'm, I'm a so player. much. Yeah, I hate it's, yeah, it's such a it's such a can of worms, and everybody's got an opinion. But I found that the nice thing about people who've had kids, parents, is that nobody judges each other. So everybody's yeah, got like true. ideas. But when you say, "Well, in my house, we all eat spaghetti noodles and we all go to bed," at, you know, and you say, "Okay, if it works for your family, great." And that's the yeah. real key: is like get to know your. Don't kid. judge. I do it judge one them. person, my wife, uh, and and the judgment is she's significantly better at it than me. Right. Like that is the only judgment you can make. That's all uh, you need. That Dan Riskin, uh, author of the new book. The owner of the fruit bat. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. See you later. Talk to you tomorrow.